this week is going to be Peter's sermon after the healing of the lame man in the temple by Peter and John. So we are in the temple. This is Peter's second temple sermon uh, in the book of Acts. Obviously, they're still in Jerusalem. Obviously, still preaching to the Jewish community there in Jerusalem. Uh, And it's going to be a very, very Jewish sermon. Uh, When you get to Paul, you'll see uh, Paul preaching uh, more to Gentiles outside of Jerusalem. But here in these early chapters of Acts, it's uh, it's the apostles in Jerusalem. So um, what I want to do first is look at chapter 3, the the narrative of the healing that we looked at last week ends at chapter at, at chapter 3 verse 10. I want to just read through the sermon of Peter that's being presented here and then we'll go back and look at it verse by verse. But I want you to get a feel for the whole flow of the sermon. It's very very intentional the way he's put his sermon together. Or I guess I should say the way Luke has recorded it here. Remember, I've mentioned several times these sermons that occur in the book of Acts uh, really are synopsis of the sermons. They probably preached longer than this. But Luke is giving you a synopsis of the sermon, whether he's writing one of Peter's sermons for you or one of Paul's sermons. But I want you to get the feel for the whole, whole sermon, then we'll come back. So look at verse 11, chapter 3, right after the healing. When he, the man that was cured of his lameness, when he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when people saw it, he addressed the people. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made the man strong whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And what God foretold by the mouth uh, mouth of all the prophets is that Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, and therefore, repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. 
And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days that you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So that's the sermon or a synopsis of the sermon, according to Luke, that uh, Peter is preaching in the temple. Notice in the book of Acts how uh, signs and wonders uh, go along with preaching the word. Oftentimes, the signs and the wonders will collect the crowd, uh, and then the word gets preached. Oftentimes, you can look at it in reverse. The word gets preached, and the signs and wonders confirm was being preached by these early apostles. So now let's go back and look and uh, make, make sure we hear what Peter is saying. So verse 11, while he, the lame man who had been healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, these people here in the temple, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Uh, If you have a picture of the ancient temple in front of you, uh, we usually put it together using New Testament evidence, uh, using the writings of Josephus. And uh, if you have a good study Bible, you probably have a picture of the temple somewhere in your good study Bible. I know the ESV study Bible has an excellent picture of the temple. I think it's stuck somewhere in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The the area called Solomon's Portico. Uh, Obviously, a portico is a covered porch. So Solomon's portico is a covered porch inside the temple precinct. Where it was located was um, on the eastern side of the temple uh, around the court of the Gentiles. So it was a fairly large area. Uh, The reason we know about Solomon's portico is uh, Jesus and the early church would preach there. Uh, You may recall, if you paid close attention, in John chapter 10 when Jesus is giving that good shepherd discourse. He's standing in Solomon's portico. So it was a place to gather, a place to teach there in the temple. And of course, uh, it it was covered with an an oak roof, so it kept you out of the the weather. Uh, In the first century, we know this is not true, but in the first century, the people thought, because this is the second temple, that Jesus is hanging out in, the one that's built after the Babylonian captivity. That's not Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. In the first century, um, some of the people thought that that portico area went back to Solomon's temple. Uh, It didn't. It was part of Herod's renovations of the second temple. But it was referred to as uh, Solomon's portico. So that's where they're gathered. Again, notice where they're at. They are good Jews. They are in the temple. They are observing set Jewish times of prayer. That's when this person gets healed. And then the, so that gathers the crowd. And Peter, and this is a very different picture of Peter than you see in the Gospels. Again, Peter addresses the crowd. Um, notice how he starts his sermon in verse 12. Men of Israel, again, he's talking to Jews. Uh, when, when Paul talks to Gentiles, folks like us, he does it a little differently. Uh, this is a very, very, very um, Jewish sermon. I want you to even notice as you go through, 
they all used Scripture. That's the only way they knew how to preach, was preach using Scripture. And, of course, for the early Christians, Scripture was just what we call the Old Testament. But particularly in this sermon, I want you to take notice of the, the recurrence of you, 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 your. And he's preaching straight at the Jewish people gathered here in the temple. Um, so he, he, he greets them, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, religious nature, we have made him to walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, again, remember who he's preaching to, um, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And he starts talking about Jesus. Um, you know, it's refreshing in our narcissistic age uh, to see that Peter and John quickly deflect attention from themselves uh, to, to Jesus. So they make a beeline to talking about Jesus. And again, he's talking to Jews, so he references the patriarchs. Uh, but notice how he references Jesus here in verse 13. Uh, God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Uh, some manuscripts have the word child there. Most manuscripts, and probably the better translation, is servant. Uh, the reason being, that is an unusual title for Jesus in the New Testament. But again, notice what Peter's doing. He's preaching to Jews. Where we have found the title servant for Jesus is in what we call those servant oracles, those servant songs uh, that are scattered from Isaiah chapter 42 through Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. He bore our iniquities. Those four servant songs that are found there in Israel, we say, look, the prophet's talking about Jesus. And we tend to read some of those servant songs during Holy Week. Um, the Jewish community will tend to say the servant being spoken of there in Isaiah 42 through 53 is the, the, the people of Israel. Uh, we say it looks an awful lot like Jesus to us. And Jesus almost seemed to take it as a job description. So when, when Peter here used the word servant, uh, this Jewish crowd would be thinking about the writings of, of the prophet Isaiah. So he refers to Jesus as his servant Jesus, whom you, again, pay attention to the recurrence of the word you, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Again, just like in the Gospels, um, Pilate is given in contrast to the Jewish leaders. You may remember from the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, Pilate declares Jesus innocent six times. Pilate tries hard to release Jesus. Pilate uh, began a custom for us when he washed his hands of the affair. So uh, Pilate's kind of presented in one way and over against Pilate, uh, who was a weak leader, obviously, at least at that point. Uh, Pilate um, is trying to release Jesus, but the, the leadership of the Jewish, the religious leadership of the Jewish people uh, were intent on killing Jesus. So, um, yeah, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Jesus. I suspect even 
that some of those same religious leaders that participate in the killing of the Jews, killing, killing of Jesus, while most of the Jews were just starting their day, I suspect some of those Jewish religious leaders are here in this crowd. Remember, this is literally just weeks after the crucifixion, crucifixion death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Some of them are probably literally in this crowd. Uh, you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. So again, here's Jesus being referred to as the holy one. That is Isaiah's favorite title for God. So here Peter, in this Jewish context, is referring to Jesus as the Holy One and the Righteous One. Um, again, they would pick up what Peter's laying down here, uh, this, this um, uh, declaration of the divinity, the deity of Jesus. Denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer, that's Barabbas, and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed. Again, we've, already, we've seen it in chapter 2. The New Testament has no problem. They don't seem to feel the need to explain it. And they have no problem reconciling both the sovereignty of God and, and, the, uh, and human agency or free will. It was foreordained by God. God planned it. God wanted to happen. But you were evil for doing it. Now, we're heirs of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. We want to figure out how that goes together. Uh, the Jewish mind is more comfortable with ambiguity than we are, more comfortable with paradox than we are. You see throughout the preaching in the book of Acts that they don't have a problem holding together the sovereignty of God, but still that doesn't let the people that God uses off the hook for their evil behavior. So uh, you killed... And again, notice this, you killed the author of life. Your translation may say something like the prince of life. Archegos in the Greek means something like author, prince, originator, uh, founder. So here Jesus is being called the originator of life. Well, again, these Jews know where life comes from. So they, 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 they're hearing what Peter is preaching about this Jesus. This would be unusual for us to do, but for a first century Jew in a first century Jewish context where they are strongly monotheistic, there is one God. For them to share that divinity in this form or fashion with anybody would be just unimaginable. But that's what's happening. I mean, here, you know, it wasn't the third, you know, when they knock on your door and they tell you the Roman Catholics in the third and fourth century invented the deity of Christ, invented the doctrine of the Trinity. Have a Bible study with them. I mean, it's right here. I mean, when you use this kind of language for Jesus from a Jew in a Jewish context, there's no other way to interpret this. They don't call anybody. I mean, if, if they call Jew an author of life, the originator of life, the Holy One, yeah, that's bizarre, unless, you, unless that is who you are. So, so Peter knows why he's doing here. Uh, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And again, these people preaching were witnesses to this event just a few weeks ago. So... Um, 
They're, they're declaring their witnesses to this resurrection of Jesus. And notice, nobody's saying, wait a minute, let me show you the corpse. Nobody's offering evidence to say you have absolutely lost your mind saying that this person that was crucified uh, by the Romans was raised from the dead, uh, whom God raised from the dead. Uh, you, please notice in all the preaching that you find in the book of Acts, uh, the centrality of the resurrection. It is a package deal, but the crucifixion is never proclaimed apart from the resurrection. It's a package deal, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So they always get to, to the resurrection. Whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. Verse 16, now he's going back to this man who was healed. And his name, Jesus' name, by faith in his name. And again, name is, in our culture, name is just a label. It's just a label that our parents have affixed to us. I really wish parents would pay a little more attention. <laughs> Particularly, they want me to baptize that baby. You know, because first, your first two names are your Christian names. Your other name is your family name. Your first two names are your Christian name. That's a stretch for some of these babies. <laughs> anyway, so in the ancient world, a name was not just a label that was just arbitrarily affixed to you by your parents. Your name symbolized something, stood for something, meant something. It was a summary of your, your nature, a summary of your person, a summary of who you, your parents wanted you to be. So uh, to, to, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, to pray in the name of Jesus, to heal in the name of Jesus, means you're doing that in the power and the spirit and the authority of Jesus. Um, it's not just a label. The name of Jesus is important. And his name, by faith in his name, um, probably Peter's faith in his name is what healed this lame man. Um, don't know how much faith the lame man had, had in the name of Jesus. But Peter certainly had faith in the name of Jesus, in the person authority of Jesus. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong. Again, this Dr. Luke talking. Has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given... The man, the man, this perfect health, again, Dr. Luke, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Okay, now I want you to notice he, he, he almost softens his tone a little bit as he's preaching to these Jews here in the temple. And he says, and now, brothers, again, don't lose sight. He's calling these Jews who aren't Christians, some of them are going to become Christian, who aren't Christian at this point, he's calling them brothers. There's no extraneous words in the Bible. And now, brothers, or brothers and sisters, if you prefer, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. The reason he's softening, or the way he's softening it, is this. In Judaism, there is a difference between deliberate sins and sins of ignorance. Sometimes we call those sins of omission. Sins of commission, you know, those things you deliberately do, and sins of omission, those things that just happen maybe out of ignorance. Now, the Jewish faith and the Christian faith sees those as different. Now, you're, you're, you're still held culpable for your sins of ignorance. You're just not as culpable as for your sins that are deliberate that you do. 
So, you know, Peter's, Peter's been rather nice here. He's saying, okay, you did this out of ignorance. You did what you did a few weeks ago out of ignorance. And by the way, I'm even more so astounded that he says the rulers did it out of ignorance. Uh, they, they knew they were killing an innocent man, but okay, maybe they didn't know they were killing the incarnation of God. But they knew they were killing an innocent man. Uh, so he, he's talking about their ignorance. Verse 18. But what God foretold, again, the New Testament can hold together the sovereignty of God, the foreordination of God, the predestining of God, um, the foreknowledge of God with human culpability. Yeah, God planned all this, but that doesn't take the evil away from the people who, who carried it out. But what God foretold by the mouth of all, all the prophets... All the prophets, we Christians read the whole Old Testament as a shadow for the coming of Christ. We read the whole Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. So um, here's Peter saying, all the prophets told you about Jesus. So he's a little shocked they're so ignorant. All the prophets told them about Jesus. Uh, the mouth of all the prophets that by his that his Christ would suffer, and again the only place, almost the only place that you can get a suffering Messiah out of the Old Testament. There's a lot about the Messiah, but a suffering Messiah. Most of what the Old Testament says about a Messiah is Messiah is going to come and rule and reign and change everything. But what about a suffering Messiah? Well, then, well, that, that, that then again goes back to those chapters in Isaiah, chapters 42 through 53, the suffering servant. So that's where you get the suffering piece. Now, of course, uh, if, you, if you go ahead and accept that Messiah would suffer, then all of a sudden Psalm 22 fits perfectly. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Psalm 22 almost seems to be a, a, a depiction of the crucifixion hundreds, hundreds of years before the event. Anyway, so um, he's saying, you know, it, it was foretold this, his Christ would suffer. He thus fulfilled, verse 19, here, here's the, one of the core topics of New Testament preaching, repent, repent. Yeah, until people realize they've done something wrong, they're not going to repent. Until people realize they've done something wrong, they, they have nothing to be redeemed of. But, you know, up to this point, Peter has spent his time making sure they knew they had done something wrong. They had not fulfilled the perfect will of God. And that's why he's calling them to repent. You know, again, that good New Testament word, metanoia in the Greek, it, it literally means a turning, a turning away from the way you've been acting, a turning away from the way you've been thinking, and a turning toward God. And, you know, that, that happens when you're converted. Um, you know, conviction of your sin has to come before conversion. But um, you repent when you first come to Christ, but all the Christian community is adamant. Hopefully that's not the last time you repent. That's why in Christian tradition, whether it's Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant, we do it at the, every traditional service here at Wesley, there's a prayer of confession at the beginning of the service. If you have forgotten since last week that you need to repent, we will remind you that on Sunday. 
every Sunday. Because there has to be conviction before there can be conversion. Uh, And conversion, just like repentance is ongoing, conversion should be ongoing. There's that first turning toward Christ. But after you first turn toward Christ, I suspect that even right now in this moment, there's parts of your life. I know there's parts of my life that I haven't turned over to Jesus yet. I've still got parts of my life that need to be turned toward him. So that's why... um, uh, that ongoing work of the Spirit in convicting us is an ongoing work. The ongoing work of conversion is an ongoing work. Uh, it was um, C.S. Lewis who said that every conversion is a blessed defeat. Conversion happens when we decide to lay down our arms, quit struggling against what God wants. Quit struggling against what God wants. And like C.S. Lewis said at his conversion, he decided to let God be God. But that's why every conversion is a blessed defeat. But, um, yeah, it takes something to give up your arms. It takes something to, de- to declare surrender. And that's what conversion is. Anyway, repent. Verse 19, repent, therefore, turn back. In case you don't know what repent means, repent, therefore, turn back that your it's just a keep saying your, you. Your sins may be blotted out. That's the forgiveness. That's the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit. Um, your sins are cast into the sea of forgetfulness. Uh, as far as the east is from the west. You know, you know, it's amazing. Sometimes God declares you forgiven. And some people say think they know more than God. And they refuse to receive that they're forgiven. That's why after prayers of confession in the Christian community, what always should, what always does here in traditional services, what always comes next? An assurance of pardon. You confess, he will forgive. He will forgive. So if you keep holding on to your guilt after you've asked for forgiveness, you're, you're, you're acting like you know more than God knows and that your sin is greater than God's grace. So, yeah, repent and therefore turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And that's not necessarily an emotional thing. You may not feel like your sins have been blotted out. You know, again, I'm always amazed at how often we can sing hymns. And I often wonder if we really believe what we're singing. I mean, some of the most popular hymns, you know, whether we sung this past Sunday because it's Reformation we Sunday, so we sang here, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Though This World with Devils Filled should threaten to undo us. I don't know everybody believes this world is filled with devils. Martin Luther sure did. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go. It's hard to let goods go. It's really hard to let kindred go for the sake of Christ. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. I encourage you, commit a mighty fortress to memory. There was a time in the Christian tradition, every home had a Bible and every home had a hymn book. And both were used every day. Well, yeah, I hope we believe what we sing. Another popular hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. There's probably half the funerals I do that's used that. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, I bear it no more, it is well, it is well with my soul. Yeah, I mean, we, we need to believe this stuff. 
We need to believe this stuff. Whatever your emotions tell you or whatever you whatever else you're preoccupied with. You really do need to believe this stuff. So repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Look what happens. If you do that, look what happens in in verse 20. Peter's giving you the grand scheme of the Christian life, that times of of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Uh, That's called the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You repent, you turn to Christ, you accept his forgiveness. Times of refreshing will come. Uh, That's the gift of the Holy Spirit, which you've seen Pentecost uh, already happen in chapter 2. So that's that's the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It is Jesus Christ, who is the baptizer in the Spirit, that he may send the Christ. Now 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 he's looking toward the end of history. He's looking toward the second coming. That he may send that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Um, He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until, after times of refreshing through the work of the Holy Spirit, what comes? The time of restoring. You know, I'm so glad that a lot of Christians in the West in the last hundred years, thanks to a lot of great New Testament scholars writing, one of them, N.T. Wright, Christians beginning to remember, or at least read the book again, heaven is not the end of the journey. Heaven is not our final destination. Heaven is wonderful and great and amazing, but heaven is uh, where we go upon death. Our spirits go there to rest, to await, to await something. You know, he calls it here the restoring the time for restoring all the things. The time for restoring. Um, the, the promise of the Old Testament and New Testament is when Jesus is finished, all will be restored. That's not just your soul. All will be restored. That includes creation. That includes creation. Go read Romans 8. Creation groans until the revealing of the sons of God. In the end, when Jesus wraps up his work, he will wrap it up. And it will not just be a little piece of work. Uh, Our souls will be redeemed. Creation will be redeemed. We will be back to a garden of Eden on steroids. That's what you see at the end of the book of Revelation. So what happened until the last hundred years, in a lot of ways, the last 30, 40 years in the West, you die and you go to heaven, end of story. Don't talk about anything else. And that's great. That's wonderful. That's true. But there's something beyond that. You know, think about, you know, the dead in Christ shall rise. The Lord shall return. The kingdom will come. All creation will be redeemed. Um, I, I, I don't think I told you about being in Scotland. This, you know, we were in Scotland the first week of September. And uh, when I travel, my wonderful wife... My kids used to have to, but my wonderful wife lets me do things I like doing, like walking around cemeteries and going to churches. And when we were in Scotland, we were in Inverness on Sunday. And I I was able to get two church services in, in Inverness, um, because there was one at 10 o'clock that I could find, and there was one at 11 o'clock. The one at 10 o'clock, pardon me if this sounds judgmental to you, but it's just what I watched. The one at 10 o'clock was in the Scottish Episcopal Cathedral. 
Uh, after the Protestant Reformation, there were still a few Scottish people who accepted the bishops, bishops of the Anglican Church from London. That's the Episcopal Church in Scotland. Um, there's still a few Scottish Episcopalians. Uh, they're tied to Canterbury. Most of Scotland, the, the, the Church of Scotland, is a Presbyterian, Calvinist, um, no, no bishops. Uh, that's what Episcopal means, you have bishops. No bishops. So um, the first church I went to was a Scottish Episcopal church. Uh, a little over a block away was the old, old, old North Free Church of Scotland. And the Free Church of Scotland um, broke away from the Church of Scotland over, over several things. One of the things being patronage, political involvement, and liberal theology. Uh, the Free Church of Scotland broke away from the Church of Scotland over those issues in 1843. They still call it the Great Disruption. I had a conversation with somebody at that at church, a layperson. She, I, I, I mentioned the Great Disruption, and she told me all about it from 1843. <laughs> anyway, so the the Free Church of Scotland is, is is tries hard to be biblical and focused on the Christian faith. Uh, Scottish Episcopal Church, uh, maybe. Anyway, I went to two services. Here I'm in the Scottish Episcopal Church. The priest was preaching a sermon. It was the first Sunday in September, Labor Day. I didn't realize, but they had declared September to be Creation Care Month. I believe in caring for creation. I probably, because of my family, I probably recycle more than y'all do. I believe in caring for creation. Anyway, I'm in a church service, and uh, the, the topic of the sermon is creation care. Not bad. Even to the point the priest was telling the people, us, that part of our baptismal vows were, was creation care. Well, that may be a little stretched theologically, but I, okay, I can buy that. Um, but what I'm hearing there in that sermon is we've got to do a better job of saving creation. I, I can get that. I, I, get, I understand that. Well, then I go down the street. I had to slip out a little early. Um, I had to I had, to, um, I, had to, I had the sermon, but I didn't get the Eucharist. I'd have preferred to have had the Eucharist, not the sermon. But I, had, I, didn't, I, had, I had the sermon slipped out while they were getting ready to observe the Eucharist, and I went down to the uh, free, free church, um, the Presbyterian the church. There, it was a very clear message. Christ saves creation, just like Christ saves you. Now, we participate. We participate. But Christ saves creation. He may do it through you, but Christ saves creation. When the kingdom comes one of these days, it would not be because we were such good recyclers. <laughs> I believe in recycling. But it was such a clear distinction. I wish I could have videotaped them. In one church, we were told to go save creation. In the other church, we were reminded that Christ will use us and through us and the work of the Spirit to save creation. Now, I suspect you can tell by the tone of my voice which one I preferred. Anyway, um, so repent, the times of refreshing will come. Then the Christ uh, will, that is appointed for you will return. And then the time of restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Yeah, dim bones, dim bones, they're going to get up out of the ground. Uh, Jerusalem be restored. Uh, paradise will be brought back. Yeah, read the whole book, whole book. That's the Jewish hope, and it's the Christian hope. 
Um, anyway, so the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth. Again, by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Again, what, what Peter's doing here, this Jewish crowd, is your Bible tells you all this stuff, all of the prophets. Now he's going to give you the text. He's, he's, he's going to try to put the cookies on the lower shelf for these people. Moses, verse 22, Moses said, so he's going to quote Moses from the book, what we call the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Moses said, from your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Jews say it's Joshua. Follow me here a minute. Jews say it's Joshua. You know who took the role for Moses. Jews say it's Joshua. We say it's Jesus. By the way, you know Jesus is Greek for what Jewish name? Yeshua, Joshua. So they're not completely wrong, just got the wrong Joshua. So here Peter's saying, this Jesus is who Moses was telling you about. So he's, he's and of course Moses is the prophet, the greatest of all prophets, because um, David wasn't one. But Moses is the greatest of all prophets to the Jewish people. So he just quoted Moses. Now, verse 24, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, so from Moses and the next prophet Samuel, because you had that period of, of the judges in between there, but you have Moses, then you have Samuel, and he's saying all the prophets from Samuel, and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Proclaim this thing about Jesus. Proclaim this stuff would happen. So he's talking to this Jewish community. He's talking to them from their scriptures, preaching Jesus to them. Verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham. Now he's throwing Abraham in the, in the, in the pot. Um, Abraham, uh, said to Abraham, and your offspring, and in your offspring all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Go look at Genesis 12. Go look at Genesis 22. All the earth shall be blessed through Abraham. Well, that's we got the Old Testament. We got the prophecies. We got the oracles. We got the Mosaic law. But particularly, we got Jesus. That's how all the world, all the seed of Abraham gets blessed, is through Jesus. So now here... Um, Peter wraps it up, verse 26. God having raised up his servant, again, taking him back to Isaiah. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Paul made it clear. First to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. Sent him to you first to bless you by turning, back to repentance, by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, if they didn't think they had any wickedness to turn from, they do now. Peter made that clear. Um, they had something of which to repent. They had some sins of which to confess. And they needed to turn from the way of living, turn from the way of thinking, turn toward the Holy One of Israel, who is Jesus Christ. So um, that's how Peter took advantage of the crowd that gathered um, there after the lame man was healed. Uh, next week, we're going to see what, what, what Peter and John get for this. The crowd understood. And uh, you probably already know, I can hear some of you sort of uh, sounding like you know chapter 4, you know what happens to Peter and John for this. These people didn't say, well, that's your opinion. 
has some nice philosophy or theology, and then go about their business. At least they took it seriously enough to want to kill Peter and John. They didn't ignore Peter and John over this. You know, sometimes I think in this culture, they just ignore us. I wish they'd be agitated enough by us at least to want to kill us. But sometimes they just ignore us. They overlook us. They don't have to listen to us anymore. Well, yeah, for chapter 4. Chapter 4, you can go back into story. Um, story, in some ways, is more fun than reading the text of a sermon. But we're going to go back into story. So, and you're going to see that as a result of this, 5,000 people are converted, initially converted. 5,000 people make their initial turn to Christ here in Jerusalem. Here in Jerusalem. But, yeah, you, you know how the story is going to end in Jerusalem. Yeah, you know how the story is going to end. Good. That's a good stopping place. Um, let's pray together. God, for the gift of this day, we give you thanks for allowing us to gather here in freedom, allowing us to give attention to your word. We're so grateful. And, God, we're grateful that... Um, you seek to be involved in every aspect of our life. You not only want to save us from our sins, but you want to be Lord over all of our life. So we pray that your grace will give us the courage and the fortitude to become the people that you're calling us to become. Lord, we, we know we're a long way from perfection, but help us to continue to persevere toward the goal a little bit by little bit each day. Grow us up, mature us, sanctify us through the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can find the joy that you have prepared for us in this world and in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.